Welcome to Pod Academy. I'm Tess Woodcraft. This podcast looks at the growing concern amongst public health professionals about children's mental health. Where once public health was about clean water supplies and infectious diseases, it's more and more the case that mental health, and in particular depression, stress and anxiety amongst children, that has become the defining public health issue. That's not surprising when we see that one in ten children in the UK suffers from a diagnosable mental disorder and the numbers are rising. The Pod Academy team has been speaking to some of the contributors to a new publication from the Faculty of Public Health called The Way Ahead, Why We Need to Improve Children's Mental Health and Wellbeing. It seems that the more we discover about brain development, the more pressing this issue becomes. Early intervention is crucial. Each of our contributors looks at a different aspect of children's mental health. Philip Wilson explains how language delay is something doctors and health visitors should be looking out for because it's often a sign that a child is neglected and is a major indicator of long-term mental health problems. William Bird explores the importance of green space in developing mental resilience. But first up is Alan Marion Davis, Honorary Professor of Public Health at King's College London and a former President of the Faculty of Public Health. He explains why children's mental health has become such a pressing concern and points to an intergenerational cycle of poor mental health found in some of our most deprived communities. Unless children have uh, an upbringing which is positive and which presses the right buttons for them, which provides them with emotional well-being, uh, unless they feel happy and secure in in their early years, they go on to have all sorts of problems later on. Uh, conduct disorders, in other words, challenging behaviour, emotional problems such as uh, anxiety, perhaps depression, problems with them, their self-image, their, their self-confidence. This affects their learning. They, they then have problems in assimilating knowledge. They have all sorts of behavioural problems. And this tracks on up as they go through childhood, become um, young people. They can, um, again, reflect those problems, perhaps antisocial behaviour, and it then affects their chances of getting employment, getting a decent job. And it affects their whole life, really, and in turn, how they themselves become parents and what kind of parenting they provide. So it's a cycle, an intergenerational cycle. So it's very important. It's a chicken and egg thing, but you have to catch this as early as possible and try and do something about really a really positive parenting and a positive environment from the very earliest days of somebody's life. Glasgow GP and academic Dr Philip Wilson agrees that recognising problems in the very earliest stages of a child's life is crucial. In particular, he points to language delay in young children as one of the most important things that health visitors and doctors should be on the lookout for, as it can be a sign of neglect and an indicator of potential long-term mental health problems. Language delay can be caused by a range of factors. It can be caused by uh, genetic factors, for example, autism spectrum conditions and a range of other problems can lead to language delay. Language delay can also be caused by neglect. We know, for example, that the vast majority of children in the care system have language delay. We know that the vast majority of prisoners have communication difficulties. And had we been able to go back Uh, and assess their language as young children, we would have almost certainly found significant abnormalities in their communication abilities. And we know that language delay is associated with a range of problems. We know that uh, the vast majority of children excluded from school have communication difficulties. If a child 
arrives at school unable to understand what the teacher is saying, their behaviour is likely to be perceived as disruptive to the class. And that is likely to lead to a range of negative consequences, which can be very, very difficult to put right by the time they're five or six or seven. It can be virtually impossible to put it right. Therefore, if language is an important issue, then the time to get things right is before the child reaches that age. So th there is a growing body of evidence that there are a range of types of intervention that can support families to develop the language of their child. Um, in Glasgow now, we're just starting a universal contact between health visitors and families when children are 30 months of age. And the health visitors are uh, using a very simple tool to assess uh, child's language development. And in fact, um, we think the tool could be as simple as asking the parent whether the child has a vocabulary of 50 words and whether they're able to put two words together to make right. a meaning. And if the answer to either of those questions is no, then that is worthy of further investigation and likely need for help. 30 months is, is a, a good age when um, there are some relatively simple things that we can do to identify vulnerability. In a sense, the, the point of early intervention is that it produces more benefit than late intervention. The case for investing in the early years is, is really all about getting a bigger bang for your buck. At a universal level, there are messages that we can promote which can improve the quality of interaction between parents and their children, improve the level of sensitivity, improve the enjoyment that parents have with being parents. And those sort of things include encouraging parents to talk with their babies, to use backward-facing buggies. There are also policy issues which uh, can impact on the environment that young children are brought up in, um, and the obvious one there being maternity leave, paternity leave, and so on. And I do think that, uh, and indeed, we have produced a fair bit of evidence that um, health visitors and GPs in general are not very well trained in um, the issues concerning early brain development, for example, in identifying the uh, or knowing about the importance of identification of early language delay. Um, so there is a fair bit of scope for further education. Alan Marion Davis too stresses the importance of education and training and also the need for more research. Training is vital, not only um, parents and children themselves uh, but also the professionals that come into contact with them. The training in parenting skills you know, um, and how p parenting works, how that early environment works, what the influences are, all that's very important and I think also what we need is much more research particularly uh, in in the whole business of promoting mental health in children and young people, that, posit that whole positive side of things, promoting positive health and well-being. That's a word we, have, we don't often use, but it's coming into the parlance now. What, is, what do we mean by well-being, particularly as applied to children? Let's understand that. Let's do more research in what that is, what the factors are. If we can get all, the, all that right, then we might be making some, some inroads into this. 
One area where the research evidence is clear is the role of green space in supporting children's mental health and well-being. Dr William Bird, a strategic health advisor to Natural England and a GP, says that children need frequent contact with the natural world to build a foundation of good mental health and children who live in a concrete environment with no grass or trees are less likely to be able to develop mental resilience. He describes the impact of having or not having access to green space. There are two types of the effect. There's the immediate and there's the long term. The immediate one is physical inactivity. Children are less active than they used to be. That has a direct effect on their development, on balance, on bone structure of their muscles and their ability to do physical activity as an adult. Um, that is all predetermined as a child. And the reason they're not doing activity is because there's a direct correlation to being outdoors and being physically active. For children, it's absolute straight line. So the more they're indoors, the less activity they do. And what we try and say as adults is that, OK, but they've got sport. But sport tends to be in a very short, sharp period, or perhaps an hour or so. It's highly structured, and for the rest of the time, they don't do very much. So sport's good. And absolutely we want to encourage more of it, but it doesn't appeal to every single child. So we need to encourage both sport and playing in a natural environment where children are far more active of every ability. A lot of that can take place in an inner city park. You know, there's no doubt that introduce a child to a park and give them a football, give them just a time to just run around, and if you actually have some of the vegetation or an old tree that's fallen down, those are the places they'll go to. Very often they've got an inquisitive nature and they want to catch the bug, they do want to catch the beetle. And even a small patch of green space in an inner city area is enough to get a child excited. Even a small window box or turning over a stone. So we've got, a, we've got this aspect of children where we've got that relationship with nature, but also it's the mental health problems and the inactivity problems. The mental health problems are probably the most important. Children living in inner cities have incredible stresses they have they've got problems in, in in their environment they've got problems of their family which may be falling apart um they may be even being abused as children they've got crime around the corner they've got concrete all around them a school which may not be very supportive and they're having to cope with a huge amount of stress coping with that stress depends on people helping them but it also depends on the place if they have a natural environment around them, the evidence shows that those children in particular can cope with more stress than children who just have concrete around where they live. There was a whole series of studies done in Chicago where there were some concrete blocks, loads of them, for 13 miles, and thousands of Afro-Caribbean children and adults lived in these blocks. Some of them maintained trees and grass around them. Others, the trees and grass died, and it was just concreted over children were allocated and their parents were allocated a flat randomly. So you have a perfect randomised control trial. And a lot of the studies show that domestic violence, um, violence of all types, was far greater in those where there was this concrete and not the trees. For children, they could cope with stress better when they were in the ones with the trees and grass compared to in the concrete. And a whole lot of other studies about children's academic performance, etc., all showed that the combating stress was better done in those flats where there's trees and grass surrounding it. So that's, that's the immediate issues, the, the, the issues for, for children themselves. But what about the long-term things? 
Well, there are three aspects we can look at. First of all is that children who have mental health problems under the age of 16 are far more likely to have mental health problems as an adult. So anything that can help offset that, create a resilient, um, will actually improve um, their long-term prospects for mental health. Children who are inactive will become more likely to become inactive adults. So you've got this kind of almost this foundation of mental health and physical activity which is so important you've then got this relationship with the natural environment which sounds a little bit kind of you know sort of strange and slightly almost spiritual but it's not it's a very classic example of children understanding how to to use the resource of a natural environment it's a resource like many other resources um if they don't understand it before the age of 12 the evidence shows that they won't understand it as an adult and the downside of that is that for the conservation of our natural environment, you're creating a whole new generation who don't understand why perhaps it should be saved. But for the human and for the ch children of coming onto adults, the inability to connect to the natural environment is an opportunity lost of being able to create that resilience for your health, of being able to be outdoors, reducing the stress when things are difficult and basically being able to kind of use that as a buffer to the stress of a urban area so if you don't understand the natural environment you can still do it but it doesn't have the strength so we're creating this new generation whose inactivity whose mental health problems and the environmental aspects of it are all being lost what can we do so that people who live in alienating environments can feel that the natural environment is something that they can have access to, that they can understand, that they can be part of? Well, you create a modern city, an exciting city. Um, I've been to Shanghai and helping them with their ability to create a new city. Um, and green space is going to become a huge part of it. They know that now. New York, likewise, have got new guidelines where green space now is going to take highest priority. Bogota have done it already. People are realising that cities have to become a more vibrant, exciting city and a more healthy city for the people.